Uh, this morning I want to preach on being made in the image of God and what that concept means within Christianity. And it's a big foundational belief, very, very important, and it has a lot of implications whether you accept that or reject that. And that's kind of what I'm looking at today, mostly keying on the accepting of it and what it means to be made in the image of God, and then towards the end, uh, looking at what happens and what has happened in society when people have moved away from this belief. So a couple weeks ago, I was, I was talking about uh, what it means to have the breath of God within us. That's a, you know, that's a privilege that comes with a power and a purpose when God has given us life. And this, this other theme that's been rattling kind of around in my brain for a couple weeks is what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Another thing that happened in, in Genesis, uh, which is where we're going to be reading from today, Genesis 1. So for those that are new, that's the very, very first chapter of the Bible. Um, and also, I guess last Sunday I was speaking on manipulation and whether that's the manipulation of doctrine or manipulation of you in general or your identity. And uh, this, this thing in particular, being made in the image of God, this is something the enemy is going to come after continually because it's foundational. And you, as you'll see, it has major, major implications. And, you know, the devil likes to skew this and try to push us away from being made in the image of God. And uh, first of all, just to define what that term means, um, a synonym for that, and it's used in Scripture continually, would be made in God's likeness. We're made to be like God. Or ma made in his image. So we're made made to be like God in, in, in some fashion. And there's a bit of a mystery there because we haven't you know, seen God in his fullness. When we get to heaven we'll, and, and we get to hang out with him, we'll kind of understand completely of how he's made us. But there's also other things that we can uh, that are kind of delineated in scripture and we can figure out how we're made in the image of God. So it would be Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Uh, towards the end of that first chapter. And uh, just for some context, if you're not familiar with this chapter, this is the creation story. It's all the verses before of how God is uh, speaking creation into existence, speaking, you know, light and, um, and you know, making the sun, the moon, and plants and animals, or sorry, yeah, animals I think are made on the sixth day, the same as humans here. But uh, this is the very last day that he's creating. Of course, the seventh day he rests. The sixth day here, which we're getting into, this is when he makes human beings. So starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the key verse that's in there is verse 27, saying, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we're going to look at some of the implications. Is what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? So first of all, it means we have extraordinary value. Extraordinary value. 
C.S. Lewis is a famous Christian writer of both fiction and nonfiction. Um, probably most famous work would be the Chronicles of Narnia, but also did a lot of theological work, quite the academic guy. Uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says that there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. That's because, you know, as we're made in the image of God, we're not ordinary, but rather extraordinary. And all human life is sacred. Psalm 139, verse 14 says, We are beautifully and wonderfully made. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's masterpiece. And I need to articulate that we don't have the image of God, we are the image of God. Meaning our very essence as human beings is the fact that we are a representation of God and what He is like. And because God is love and we are a reflection of His image and a reflection of Him, we are therefore the objects of God's affection, the ones that He loves. We are created to be loved by God, made for a relationship with Him. And because God never changes, His love for us never changes. As we're, you know, this, we're this reflection in the result of His love, that means our value is inherent, meaning it is a foundational aspect of our humanity and it can never be changed. We can never lose our value to God. We, God will never stop loving us. Even though as humans we've walked away from God, We've marred that image and said we weren't going to be like him and we've rejected that and rejected our origin. And sometimes we've been such a poor demonstration and a representation of what God is like. Our value still stays the same. The Apostle Paul knew this. He was somebody that greatly would have marred the image of God upon his life because he spent a lot of his time early on actually hunting down Christians and uh, sending them to their deaths. But then he, he radically encountered Jesus, and he wrote one of the most powerful passages in the Scripture in Romans 8, Romans 8, 38 and 39. It says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is to read another Bible verse that's kind of showing of how this love is shown. Romans 5.8 God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though we've completely messed this up in many different ways, Jesus would still die for us. He would come and help restore that this, this image of God with, within us and make us clean. So no matter you know, how we've messed this up, however we've been a poor representation, or anything that gets in the way of our uh, you know, kind of initial design and plan of God, whether that's sin or illness or weakness or age or even demonic possession, my goodness, we will always retain the status of being God's image bearers, His beloved, the apple of His eye, the pinnacle of all creation. And nothing can ever separate us from that status. Nothing can ever lower us from that status. We have an extraordinary value. Secondly, to be made in the image of God means we have extraordinary ability. We possess qualities that God has. Qualities that do not exist throughout the rest of creation. See, we have a rational mind, an ability to reason, to discern, and to decide. We have a capacity for amazing creativity, just like our Creator we, you know, we have the ability to make all sorts of wonderful works of art and design things, again, just like God. 
We also have the ability to experience a wide range and a depth of emotions and feelings. And we also have the ability to, you know, sit back and appreciate all of those things and realize that, that these things separate us from the rest of creation. We can see, you know, beauty in art and we can, uh, we can appreciate, you know, rationality and, and, and logic and stuff like that. Um, we can appreciate emotions and, you know, experience the power of them. We also have this ability to recognize God's glory. It's another thing that separates us from creation. We can see God's glory all over the place and the amazing works that God has done and, and thank him for it. And, of course, most importantly, the most amazing ability we have is the ability to have a relationship with God, to give and receive love. And, again, these are qualities that separate us from all of creation. Another big concept is we are made in God's image and God is a spirit. John 4, 24. For God is a spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So because God is a spirit and we've been made in the image of God, we are also uh, created with spiritual properties. We are spiritual beings. And so that means we get to connect with God on a spiritual level. Again, that separates us from the rest of creation. We get to interact with you know, the spiritual world, and we have a capacity for spiritual gifts and for God's spirit to move through us and do amazing things. God can move through us miraculously. You don't see, you know, a bunch of uh, cows in the field having a healing service anytime. You know, this God will work through us because we're at the pinnacle of his creation. We have his, you know, breath in our lungs. We have his very spirit within us. We're made in his image. John 14, 12 through 14 says this, I tell you the truth, anyone that believes in me will do the same works I have done. This is Jesus talking, by the way. And even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Another thing is, uh, another spiritual thing we do is we pray and God can answer to those prayers. And again, the miraculous can happen. And uh, as we were talking about two weeks ago, that breath that's in our lungs, God's breath that's in our lungs, and so that breath has power, and so our words have power. Again, it's exemplified in the Bible that God's word had power. Power. He spoke creation into existence, and so he has also made us in his image, so our words also have power. We're like a representation of what God is like. We're a reflection of that. Proverbs uh, 18.21, the tongue has the power of life and death. We can speak life or we can speak death. Our words have far more power than you know, uh, the, the noises the rest of creation makes. Uh, honestly, we could probably go on this category for a long time, but I'm just going to uh, go on to point three here. But again, we have extraordinary abilities that set us apart from all of creation because we're made in the image of God. Um, the third thing that we have when we're created in the image of God and we know that we're, to made, we're made in God's likeness and we reflect who he is, is we have extraordinary purpose. To go back to Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image and to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. 
So since God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you know, he's the ruler of the universe, and we're made to be like him. We're, we're, you know, we're his kids, his beloved. We are also born to rule and reign and have authority. And God has given us authority and dominion over everything else that's here on this, uh, this earth, all the other creatures of the earth. We're the top of the food, the food chain, and we're the governors and the protectors and the caretakers of them all. We've also been tasked with the command of being fruitful and multiplying. And that's in every, in every which way. That's a big theme throughout Scripture. Whatever God has given us, we are called to expand it and grow it. So physically, obviously, that, may, that looks like having uh, babies, but there's more than that. It's just like that we can also expand his kingdom via evangelism, get more people into the kingdom of God. We can expand his kingdom with... Uh, you know, growing our talents and our skills that God has given us. We can expand the, you know, the kingdom you know, by spreading his love. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 uh, to 20, this is the Great Commission. This is Jesus giving his disciples um, you know, a mission, a purpose. And he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Probably the most important way, and I kind of already referenced this, that we expand God's kingdom is by exemplifying his primary attribute that he always leads with, and that's his love, his very love for the world. Of course, the famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's why he sent his son. That's his purpose behind doing what he does. Why? Because we have that extraordinary value. So having a, a purpose of showing love gets in line with that. First John 4, 11 and 12 says this, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. Again, we could spend a lot of time diving into what it means to have this extraordinary purpose and the amazing privilege that is and, and how that, that gives you, an, a, you know, an amazing zest for life because that's a quite an amazing purpose to have, literally to be a part of saving the world and expanding God's kingdom. It's quite the amazing privilege and it gets, you know, can get you really excited about life and, and that you know, whoever you are and you don't need to worry about the, your qualifications, that God thinks you're, you're perfectly made to fulfill this amazing mission. So I want to transition to another part of the message here, which is the restoration of the image of God. Because again, we've talked about that we have marred this. We have messed it up and often walked away from it and what God has done about that. So I want to read a quote from uh, the theologian and writer N.T. Wright. He says, it seems to me that God has put humans like an angled mirror in his world so that God can reflect his love and care and his love and care and stewardship of the world through humans so the rest of the world can praise the creator through humans. So we've been made to reflect God, to reflect the, crea- the creator, to put the attention on him, to show people what God is like, to be God's very hands and feet in this world. But again, unfortunately, this has been something we have disfigured. We have often disfigured the image of God and not shown the real image of God. We have misrepresented God in many different ways. That's because we have a fallen nature. We have all sinned, going all the way back to that story of Adam and Eve. Right at the beginning of creation, they rejected God and said, you know what, we're going to go our own way. We're going to do our own thing. 
And that means that there is sin all throughout the world, and the world has reaped the consequences of, the, of that decision. And we all continue to do that as well. Romans 3.23, famous verse, says, We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. But again, luckily, there is more to the story. God loves us so much, he didn't want to leave us that way, because he, we have that extraordinary value. And our value supersedes our sin. That's why God doesn't just leave us in our sin. He never leaves us or forsakes us, and he's always with us because our value is inherent. It always stays with us. And that's the impetus for God to come and rescue us and make us clean. After Romans 3.23, just to read the next two verses, it says, Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. See, Jesus was the only person that was the perfect image of God because he was God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So Jesus came to live the life we should have lived, and he, sh- he, he showed us what it would be like if you truly walked around as the image of God, what difference you could make in the world. And so that's why we're Christians, because we follow Christ in that mission, and we make him our example, because he showed us what the image of God is really like. And so we therefore follow him and try to be the best little Christ we can, which is what the word Christian means. We put on that faith that, you know, that Jesus really was God and that he's really made us new. We have this ability to better live up to being God's image bearers. That's a process that we have to consciously do and work at. Colossians 3.10 says, Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So it's a process of becoming more and more like God and making and him continuing to conform you to his image. And so you can be more and more like him. And, of course, have that more, uh, you know, more extraordinary ability, more extraordinary purpose to reach people for him and better reflect God and grow his kingdom. And when Christians have done this, when they've risen up and, and become more like God, and they begin to see other human beings as fellow image bearers with an inextricable value, it has massively changed the world. So human rights actually has its origin in this concept. Christians began to run with this idea that all life is sacred, that all life is valuable, no matter what has come in the way. And this movement of early Christianity, this has actually created hospitals and orphanages and schools. Uh, And even uh, babies that were historically thrown out in Greek and Roman culture... uh, Maybe sometimes these parents didn't want the kid, and so they'd throw it in the dump. Uh, maybe it was a female and they wanted a male or had uh, a defect in their mind of some kind, or it seemed weak. They would literally just throw the kid out. Um, you know, kids had no rights, basically. And they're, they're thrown away, and Christians would go pick up those kids, nurse them back to health, and adopt them and raise them. Why? Because all life is sacred. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, we see some of this in the Bible as well. Of Like, uh, historically, women have not had many rights. They've been treated quite terribly. And I, 
Jesus was just a revolutionary when he showed up in the way that he would, he would treat women and treat them with that inextricable value of made in the image of God. Again, going back to Genesis, it said, male and female are created in the image of God. Both have that same equal value, and Jesus upheld that. And just like we were doing today when we were honoring the kids, and, and you know, historical culture, kids were seen kind of an annoyance, and, you know, you you know, kept away. There Jesus is like, no, 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 come hang out with me. I want you in my presence. He treated them with value. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit funny to me when people try to criticize Christianity of being, you know, bad or that we've done bad things to the world. But it, you know, the good that's happened and come out of it, it drastically overshadows that. Of course, most people don't realize that the impact that Jesus made when he came and gave value to human life. It's really incredible when you begin to look at it. Now I want to look at the other side of the coin. What happens when people reject the image of God, when they don't see people as having value, with having extraordinary ability and purpose? And this is dark. This is dark stuff. What happens when we walk away from the creation story of Adam and Eve, that God has breathed life into humanity, that we all come from, uh, from God? We've all been made in his image with that extraordinary value, ability, and purpose. What happens when we don't believe that, you know, that there's sin that has marred this image of God and that we need to be made clean and be made right with God? Now, the famous rejection of this creation narrative would be the theory of evolution, now, over, and which would believe that you know, over the course of billions of years, life somehow just developed on its own. Nature made life. And um, survival of the fittest is one of the big themes within the theory of evolution, which means that, you know, the fittest life forms, the best life forms, they survived while other ones died out. And eventually, you know, humans have just come to be what we are today, all on our own due to the forces of nature. Uh, now, I'm sure most of you have been taught this theory or know of it. Uh, that's invented by Charles Darwin in the mid-1800s. And uh, those of you that are older were probably taught that we have evolved from monkeys or apes. But I think the current version that's being taught is that um, ourselves and monkeys and apes have evolved from the same ancestor that we just don't know. There's something else that's out there. But anyways, uh, now there's some Christians that try to accept this worldview and try to join it with uh, Christianity, historic Christianity, with what's taught in the Bible. And as I've mentioned many times, when you try to do that, whenever you try to combine what the world is teaching with what's in the Bible, it just will not gel. And again, uh, the, the people that do this will not really necessarily see the Bible as God's word. And, you know, if you, if you believe that, you know, that, that God created this through this process of trial and error, essentially, and it took him billions of years, and he got it wrong many, many times, and a bunch of his original creations all died out before he finally got it right, and, and then said, you know, this is, you know, the image of God, finally. That really makes God look like a powerless idiot, honestly. That it took him billions of billions of years to make us, to be like him. And it also means that if, we're, if we believe that we've evolved and nature can, uh, has evolved us and it continues to evolve us, that would mean that the image of God is constantly changing. Which does not fly with the fact that God is unchanging and we're supposed to be reflecting that nature. Malachi 3.6 drops the bomb on this one. For I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Now, minor things about humans have definitely changed, or animals, over time. Kind of what you would refer to as microevolution. Uh, for example, like we've gotten taller. If I was to go back a couple hundred years, and if you ever visit like a fur trade, old fur trade post, you'll notice you have to duck under all of the, the doors. That's because we've, you know, grown in nutrition and uh, learned to take better care of ourselves. So we've grown taller uh, historically. And so there is little changes like that that definitely can happen. But of course, these massive jumps, which there still is no proof for today, that does not fly with Christianity, that we've just, um, or honestly, science at this point either, that we've just, you know, made jumps from being, uh, you know, from a fish to a land animal to a human. And then again, that that image of God has changed. And going back to the, you know, Genesis 1, on that sixth day when God is creating humans, Genesis 1.31 says, God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. In evening past and morning came, marking the sixth day. And of course, the seventh day, it, he realizes creation is so good that he rests. So God is able to see that his work, when he was done, was very good. He was pleased with it. said it was completed. So much so he took the next day off. So if now we argue that we weren't actually really done there, that we had to evolve further and be created further. That means that God lied there when he said, this is very good. So we're calling God a liar when we said, no, we still had to evolve more. Saying that his work wasn't actually very good. That he shouldn't have rested because there was more work to be done. So just a few more implications that happen when you accept this worldview. So of course, humanity loses its extreme and extraordinary you know, features that we've been talking about. You know, rather than being beautifully and wonderfully made and designed very intimately, where, you know, this is the results of an accident made by the blind forces of nature, where then is really our value? It lowers us from being the very pinnacle of God's creation, the apple of his eye, his beloved, to really just another animal. You know, all these inexplicable, divinely created, you know, qualities that we have, there's still really no answer of where those could have come from. And another sad thing that comes is, do we really even have a purpose in life then if we just happen to be here? Now, many would scoff that, you know, this, this type of, you know, worldview doesn't change much if I kind of, you know, compromise a bit and, and, and take some of this. You know, we can still, as human beings, live great lives. It doesn't change much when we walk away, you know, from this. But history would actually prove otherwise. And I'm... Numbers of my messages have been keying in on what began to happen in the 1800s when people started, whether it was through philosophy or psychology or science, they began to move away from God and say, we don't need him. We can have a life without God. And um, one of the famous philosophers at the time, Friedrich uh, Nietzsche, he had said, you know, God is dead. He had famously proclaimed that. And of course, Marxism is in there as well. And then uh, today we're kind of keying in on Darwin. And he came up with this theory of evolution during this time. And again, uh, as I had referenced before, people were excited about that, saying, we finally killed God. We don't need him anymore. We've explained our existence without him. And the chain reaction that has happened in society because of this is, is mind-blowing. We're going to walk through that a little bit uh, today here. So one of the first things that Charles Darwin kind of believed is that if we are evolving, we're not a singular human race, but there's multiple human races. So rather than, you know, kind of all just being humans, there's many different kind of versions of us. And he believed that some of them 
are more superior than others. And he actually used that to prove his theory. As he would look as a white man at other cultures, and he said, look at how they're inferior to us. That's because of evolution. They are lower on the evolutionary ladder than us. Of course, a big movement at that time was trying to abolish slavery. And one of the grossest things Darwin would have said is he believed that Africans were first enslaved by nature, and so that their slavery was justified. And he actually soon believed that they would, or sorry, he believed that they would actually soon cease to exist. They'd be taken out of the gene pool, we would evolve past them. The weak would die out as, in his mind. Very messed up stuff. Again, you know, evolution teaches that, that the best are going to be, the fittest are going to survive. The rest are going to die out. And so actually this, this theory of evolution and that comes with the multiple races and that separates human beings in different categories, it actually does nothing to combat racism and actually would be something that has led uh, to it festering like never before. Now Charles, Charles Darwin's cousin was named Francis Galton. And he took a lot of Charles' theories and he began to apply them you know, a little bit further down the road. And so he came up with a term called eugenics which is the belief system that we can actually advance our own evolution. We can speed up the process. We can create a fitter humanity. And this took off like wildfire in this era of doubting God and thinking we don't need him. Actually, during this time, uh, there was blue ribbon contest to see who was the fittest family, who was the most evolved family in the early 1900s. And it got you know, far more darker than that. People that were pushing this movement believed that we should actually force people to be sterilized to get them out of the gene pool. So um, ethnic minorities, poor people, special needs people, people you know, dealing with uh, mental health issues, uh, they were often sterilized. And then the hope was that you know, they could get them out of the gene pool and we could purify the gene pool and advance humans' evolution. I don't have the Canadian stats, but I have the American ones, uh, like usual, because Americans, uh, I guess do more research on themselves sometimes. But anyways, this movement actually went all the way into the 1970s, so much of you were alive around that time. So from the 1930s to the 1970s, one-third of all Puerto Rican women were sterilized. 1970s alone, 40% of Native American women were sterilized. That's in a single decade, 40% Native American women sterilized. Actually, in BC and Alberta was where it was most popular to do this kind of stuff in Canada. Again, some of you that have been around a while would remember this. Now, while this is going on in America, there was a guy in Europe that was very much so inspired by what was going on. And he took what we were doing and he really ran with it. And his name was Adolf Hitler. And he said rather than simply just sterilize people, he was going to kill them. They had a, you know, some, something deemed less desirable. They weren't part of the superior race. They didn't deserve to live. He ran a campaign called Life Unworthy of Life and literally killed millions and millions of people. Whether they were special needs or Jewish, or the uh, people that were Slavic as well were seen as lesser than, uh, people that were of Romanian descent, uh, gypsies. A lot of elderly people were killed. If you had a disease of some kind, you were killed. Literally millions and millions of people. And here's what's really sick. There was a bunch of people in North America that were fans of his work. People believing in eugenics thought, I wish we could do that here. He's going to make like a, like a very superior race. Of course, a bunch of people stood up and fought against that and, and thankfully won that war. But again, a lot of these belief systems have continued. So going from evolution to eugenics also brought about abortion. 
that's an, kind of in the theme of sterilization to a time if you can kind of kill things on the front end. And so if you look up Planned Parenthood, which is the main abortion clinic stuff that's in the States, and their founder, Margaret Sanger, she's a big believer in eugenics. She started this business to actually reduce the population of non-whites, believing them to be inferior, wanted to get them out of the gene pool. And to this day, 80% of abortion clinics are in minority neighborhoods. And literally tens of millions of non-white babies have been killed since then. It's actually the number one leading cause of death. It's worth noting that during this time, many Christians have gone along with all of these movements, evolution, eugenics, abortion. And they've walked away from humanity's inextricable value and ability and purpose and saw, saw that some life was not worthy of life. Which Christians were those? As I've keyed on many times on my message, the ones that walked away from the Bible being the word of God, the non-evangelicals, the ones that would deem themselves liberal Christians, a Christianity with more liberty, or progressive Christians, meaning a Christianity that has evolved. And oftentimes it comes down to that there's this pressure to fit in, that we need to change to be more relevant, to reach people. And, and they thought, you know, it's no big deal to compromise on, you know, some of these other teachings in the Bible. We'll just believe in heaven and Jesus loves us and a lot of other stuff we just push to the side. Whenever that goes on, it completely and utterly distorts Christianity and leads to a gross cascade of evil. What was kind of mind-blowing to me is how many Christians, as I was reading about this, would actually feel that the ends justified the means. They believed that they could you know, kill off a bunch of these different people or sterilize them. You know, we could eradicate sicknesses or illnesses and you know, improve the gene pool. And that was just mind-blowing to me that some people fell into that trap. I just want to end, uh, wind down here with the verse from uh, Romans 1. It spells out the mindset. What happens to people when they abandon God's ways? When we walk away from his worldview and what scripture teaches us? And, you know, and you'll see what happens. It just gets worse and worse. And when you, know, when you believe that you know better than God, that you can do a better job you know, than him at life or you know, making humans better and all that kind of stuff, it really creates terrible, terrible chaos. To the point where you become that prideful, God will actually have to leave you to your pride and leave you uh, in the mess that, that you've created. So Romans 1, 28 through 32. Since, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, have no mercy, and they know God's justice requires that they do the, that those who do those things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do, this, do them too. That's something that's very sad, I think, when people often walk away from historic Christianity and they walk away from good theology and, you know, things begin to cascade and change in their life and then they turn around and say, you should follow me too. God is really not like that. Now to switch to a more positive feel. Rome, uh, the reformer, the famous reformer, Martin Luther, as he was receiving revelation from God, you know, he said, if we truly begin to understand the first two words of the Lord's Prayer, the rest 
of our Christian walk will fall into place. Those first two words are our Father. Do you acknowledge the fact that God is our Father? He is our, our parent, our origin, the one whose very image we carry, whose traits we carry, that he's the one that's going to guide us and, and correct us and discipline us and that he knows better than us? If we line up to that and really make God our Father, it will change our life and will make us the best version of you know, humanity we can be. And furthermore, when we see that he's not just my father, but he's other people's fathers as well, that he's our father, that just as I'm the beloved of God, everybody else is the beloved of God as well, and loved and has this extraordinary value and ability and purpose, that changes the world. That is the best version of Christianity, when we believe that we're all part of the same family. And we need to treat each other like brothers and sisters, as the New Testament continually teaches. So I hope this message is showing you that it's important that we hold on to this concept, that we are made in the very image of God. And when we refuse to put our trust in Him and don't believe that and don't lean into that, and we come up with alternate ways to you know, understand ourselves and get our identity and you know, explain the world around us, it only leads to bad things. I hope that your own sense of self-worth has increased. I don't know if anyone's ever told you of the extraordinary value that you have. I know humans often, unfortunately, use their words for evil, and many, many evil things have often been spoken about you, that you're worthless or you'll never amount to much. God does not say those things over you. He wants you to know today of your extraordinary value to him. You're his beloved, you're his masterpiece, you're his perfection and the object of his affection. There is nothing you could ever do to change your value to him and your worth. Some of you might think, you know, that you're not all that talented, that you can't you know, ever amount to much. And God says, no, I have given you all sorts of extraordinary abilities because you were made in my image. God is all-powerful, and he's, and he's given us different aspects of that power to do change in this, change in this world. And so even though your skills and your talents and your abilities might not be the same as someone else, they're just as needed, just as valued. And God loves that he has, that you have those, and he's given you for them for a purpose. Some of you might not think you have much of a purpose here on this earth. Not much of a reason to live, but God says you have an extraordinary purpose. He literally welcomes you into his mission to save the world. Basically kind of the closest thing to real superheroes that are out there. We're a part of God's wonderful mission of saving the world. And he believes you can do it, and he has faith in you, as we have faith in him. So we have an extraordinary value, an extraordinary ability, an extraordinary purpose, because we are made in the very image of God. We are made in his likeness. And may we remember in every interaction that we have with other human beings that they too are made in the image of God. They are made to be like him. They have an extraordinary value that we can never comprehend. They are capable of extraordinary abilities that we can never fathom. And they have a purpose far beyond what we could ever understand and wrap our heads around. May we treat them accordingly. I'll end with this, Matthew 25:40. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is Jesus talking. Whatever you do to the least of society, you do to Jesus. 
And so that's why it grieves Jesus' heart terribly when we've done so much evil, when we've misconstrued uh, the image of God, when we've not seen people as you know, being made in God's likeness and having that value. Because whatever we've done to them, we've done to Jesus. Because we're all part of one body in Christ. We're all one family. I just want to end in prayer here. God, I pray people today are going to just have a new sense of what it means that they are made in the image of God, but also that others around them are also made in the image of God. Lord, may they take this seriously. And what comes from this is, on one hand, it, it, it can bring this, this extraordinary you know, identity that comes with it, this security that they've maybe never had before, to realize that, yes, they are indeed special. Yes, indeed, they were designed to rule and reign alongside God and to do all sorts of extraordinary things. God, I speak to the wounded hearts that are in this room or watching online. That had, These wounded hearts, because of what's gone on in this life, it's made them question their value or question their ability or question their purpose. And God, I pray you would minister to that. And you would say, no, 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 you are my beloved. You are my masterpiece. You have an extraordinary value, an extraordinary ability, and an extraordinary purpose. And may people begin to believe that about them, themselves. And God, I pray that uh, yeah, we'd be able to see that for others as well, God. Even some of the people we might have difficulties with, whether it's at work, at school, whatever. But we just realize this person is also the beloved of God, made in his very image. And God, that you would give us a new heart of love towards these people. And God, I pray that even when we see uh, random strangers on the street, that we would just be filled with your love and say, wow, that's the beloved of God walking by. Someone made in the image of God right there. And God, we would just see this as, yeah, just a, a new value and appreciation for humanity around us. And God, I pray that we would love like never before and we would truly be these representations that we were called to be. We would show your extraordinary, unconditional love to the world. You know, and be that, that mirror that reflects towards you and gets people interested in you and knowing the real you that can utterly and amazingly transform their life. God, I pray even the kids in this, uh, in this church will begin to understand that, of how special they really are. God, they might be in atmospheres of bullying and being put down wherever they go, but God, may they just have a firm foundation of their identity. God, I pray also for a firm foundation for all of us that your ways are not our ways and your ways are above our ways. And God, that we would not be drawn into trying to rewrite you know, the reasons of our existence or um, the history of our existence and purposes of our lives and stuff like that, but instead key into your word and what you have said and what you have declared. God, that we would have ultimate trust in you that know that your ways are best. And God, we would just pray against people uh, you know, being tempted to to walk away from what you've taught and instead put their full faith in you. And God, with that would come just an amazing freedom. That rather than getting into the continually changing theories of the world, that we would have this firm foundation of the unchanging God that is the same yesterday and today and forever. God, I pray you'd be with people as they go and you'd fill them with your joy, your love, your hope, and your peace. And God, we just pray for even transformed lives here today, this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.